Yeah, yeah, she was uh, she was excited to hear that we were doing this today. Me too. And I was telling your publicist, he was like, oh, are you familiar with Dave? And I was like, just a little bit. And do you have any questions for me? Not really. I'm okay. just, you know, glad to be here. And have I you appreciate you having me on. I'm, you know, I, uh, I'm not good at, it's probably to my detriment. I've always been bad at self-promotion. It just, I don't know. But uh, this is a necessary evil to, to kind of spread the word. Not that being on here with you is, is an evil thing, but I just mean... I've never been super comfortable uh, with self-promotion, but uh, I'm trying to get into that gear this month, you know, to kind of spread the word. So I think it's yeah. good. And I, I totally identify with the like ugh, feeling kind of funky about it. Yeah, I, I, I think you deserve ears and eyes. So, yeah, this is easy. Thanks. And it's yeah, giving a guest that understands the assignment is always my favorite shit. So we're going to be great. <laughs> we're doing it together. Oh, hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, L.A.-based comic, actor, podcast host, and writer Dave Stone. He does all the things. Based in Los Angeles by way of Atlanta, Dave Stone made his television debut on The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson in 2013, and in the same year was selected to the prestigious New Faces roster of the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, which is a crazy accomplishment, y'all. Since then, he has been on season eight of NBC's Last Comic Standing, Viceland's Flophouse, and Travel Channel's Cheat Chat. Cheat day chow down. When not, that is a hard sentence to say. When not headlighting clubs all across the country, Dave can be heard voicing several characters on Adult Swim's Squidbillies, co-hosting his paranormal podcast, The Boogie Monster, with Kyle Kinane, who is freaking hilarious, and co-hosting the Stonebergs podcast with his wife, the lovely Katie Strandberg, who I know and love dearly. What up, Katie? Also, today we are celebrating the release of his sophomore comedy album called Pack a Lunch. It's available and out for your ears now, so go listen and laugh your asses off, and at the end we'll tell you all the places that you can find it. That said, I better know Dave from actually meeting him in real time now, but proxy knowing him through his wife and from listening to the hilarious podcast, The Stonebergs. So that said, Dave, what got you into comedy? Why not stay in Atlanta? Do you like L.A.? Tell us all the things. Oh, man, all the things. <laughs> yeah, I got into comedy because it, it was something I always wanted to do, uh, maybe starting as a teenager. When I was 19, I was living in Athens, Georgia, and I would actually write jokes, go to open mic, sign my name. They'd call my name. And I just stand in the back of the room silent. I just didn't have the nerve to do it. I did that like three or four times back when I was 19, maybe 20, somewhere right around that area. And I just, I didn't have the nerve to do it, even though at the time I was a, a radio DJ. But, and you would think that would be a pretty easy segue. But on the radio, you're still concealed. You know, I'm in a booth by myself. There's not hundreds of people staring at me in a live audience. And I just, for whatever reason, couldn't pull the trigger. And I just put it out of my mind for 10 years. And uh, finally, when I was 29, um, right after a previous job that I'm sure we'll get to, I was just like, all right, it, it's time to do this thing I've always wanted to do. So pulled the trigger there, uh, started in Atlanta, was there for five years, then moved out here to LA. And I've uh, been out here for 11 years now. So just one of 
thousands of comics just grinding it out, trying to uh, get stage time and eke out a living. Come on with that truth. Okay, so <laughs> I have to know. So when you were, I'm, I'm taking you way back. So when you were standing back there and they say your name and you choose not to go on stage, were you just like covered in shame, so frustrated? Oh, I should have gone. Or were you like, best decision ever? I'm super not ready. A little of both. Okay. A little of both. Part of me was like, you know, what's the matter, dude? Just just go do it. What's the worst can ha- that can happen? But the other part was, you know, relieved, you know, because I had been nervous about it for weeks, you know, leading up to it. And 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 I, re- I sincerely thought like walking into that club that first night, that first open mic, I was like, all right, I got this. I got this. And then just I think probably watching other comics just go up and bomb. I was just like, ah, I, I can't handle that. And I'm sure I'm going to bomb because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So, yeah, it was a little bit of uh, mixed feelings there. Okay. And just tried to put it out of my mind for 10 years. But so, so so for those three times, what made you and the third time be like, that's a wrap. Like, I'm not going to go back and put my name in. Like, was there something that happened at that show where you were like, oh, hell no, this is not for me? Or were you just like, all right, if I'm not pulling the trigger, then I'm not going to waste my time? Yeah, that just like, all right, dude, it's it's been three or four times, you know, this, you clearly aren't ready for this. So let's just move on to another hobby or another challenge or whatever. Okay. And so then 10 years, you're like, Ugh, I just, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. What was the, the impetus for getting back into it? Was there a moment or were you just like, just finally ready? Yeah, there was definitely a moment. Uh, probably a couple of near death experiences as a police officer. Okay. And just like, okay, I survived this. And we I'm sure we'll, yeah, we'll get, get into, into this, it. But yep. I, uh, being a cop was not my cup of tea. I did it for four and a half years. And after uh, the second near-death experience, I was just like, all right, what am I doing? Let's uh, let's start thinking about other lines of work. Other, <laughs> Not that I immediately thought, oh, I'll just go be a professional comedian and everything <laughs> will work out fine. But it was just kind of that existential crisis of like, oh, geez, I almost died. And I haven't been doing what I really want to do with my life. So let's let's make some changes and take some chances. I love that. Okay. But so now get us up to today. So you are actively in the comedy scene. You you what made you make you transitioned from Atlanta because your first time on stage was in Atlanta. And so Mm -hmm. then you come out to L.A. What made you finally say because because L.A. the comedy scene, if you can swim here, you can swim anywhere. It's brutal. So what made you why were you like, I'm done with Atlanta. Time to go to L.A. Well, I had. um I don't know. Somebody early on told me, you know, just the concept of being a, a, a big fish in a small pond. And not that Atlanta was a small pond, but it was definitely smaller than New York or L.A. And, um, you know, that's good for your ego after a while. Like, it's fun to be the big fish in a small pond, but it doesn't really benefit your progress and, and growth as an artist. And uh, so yeah, I think from day one, I knew that, all right, if 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 I want to get serious about this, and I, I want to try to really make a career out of it. I knew early on that eventually it's either New York or L.A. Because, I mean, and this was 16 years ago. Things are a little different now, uh, you know, with everybody, you know, Zoom shows. And, you know, it just feels like the industry is looking all, o- all over the globe for talent. Whereas back then it was, or at least to my understanding, it was like, well, you got to be in New York or L.A. And L.A. was the choice just based on quality of life. Uh, and I'd never really experienced, I, I had visited once for like two days and loved it. And I'd been to New York a lot and I like New York, but uh, 
I just, I thought quality life, you know, I, I would enjoy LA over New York. I mean, New York's great, but after a couple of days, I just get claustrophobic. Everywhere you go, someone's in your face, where at least out here, you got some elbow room, you can drive your car, you can go hiking, it's a little more sprawling. So uh, yeah, it, it wasn't really a career thing. It was just quality of life. Like uh, I'll probably have more fun in Los Angeles. I appreciate that. And then did you know other comics plugged into the scene out here from Atlanta or were you starting fresh? Uh, I think I was the first Atlanta comic that moved out here in, in terms of my scene. Um, but I had met some L.A. based comics uh, that were come that had come through Atlanta. I would open for a lot of guys, Kyle Kinane, Rory Scovel, Sean Patton, James Adomi and those kind of guys. So I'd kind of I, I kind of developed a relationship with them as they would come back each year and we'd hang out and they would talk about L.A. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that that kind of sounds like the place I need to be. That's honest. And what was your what is your favorite part of comedy? Oh, goodness. Um, I think just now this sounds I'll admit this sounds a little pretentious or, or whatever, but I've, I've tried to explain this analogy to people who, who don't do comedy. But going into a room full of strangers and, you know, I, I've got a modest little career, but I'm far from a household name. So a lot of places I go, people don't know who the hell I am and they don't care. But the concept of going into a room full of strangers and making them laugh mm. almost against their will, like whether you like it or not, I'm about to crack your ass up. And it, and again, I know this sounds pretentious, but it almost feels like a superpower. It is a superpower. Very, very few people can do that outside. I mean, there's a lot of comedians that can do it, but very few people who, who aren't in entertainment or, or comedy, you know, what is, they say that's one of the, the, the top fear for most people is public speaking. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just that feeling of going into a packed room, um, knowing that a lot or majority of the people really don't know who I am. And it's like, all right, I'm about to, to make you laugh and there's nothing you can do about it. it just with my stupid words and thoughts. Isn't that wild? You know, I'm not, I don't have any props. I'm not doing anything crazy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to stand up here and talk about some stupid stuff I thought of and hopefully make you laugh your ass off. So that's, that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. And it, I, I don't think it sounds pretentious at all to say it feels like a superpower. I think it is because it's a skill that you craft over time, but it's also some people spend years and years and years and they can't crack that code. And I oh, think yeah. being able to crack the code really is a superpower. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And why did you call your album uh, pack a lunch? Um, there, a lot of comedians try to title their album after a joke or a reference in it. And the last time, my last album, I didn't. I just, last album was called Hogwash. I just always liked that stupid uh, phrase. It's kind of a Southern based phrase that I used to hear coming up, growing up. But uh, yeah, in the new hour, uh, I just have one little, it's not even a big bit. It's just a, a smaller joke about uh, like dumb Southern guys who always have stupid catchphrases. And the bit is just about how I used to work with guys that would always like kind of a tough guy thing, almost like a threat. Like, oh, you you come up here talking that to me, you better pack a lunch. <laughs> and I always just thought that was funny. And uh, plus, there's kind of a, a double meaning that maybe only I get. But like, it's a long special. It's an hour and 14 minutes. So it just feels like, oh, we're going to be here a while. And, you know, especially in a day where not to talk too much trash but a lot of comedians are putting out full specials that are 27 minutes 32 yep. minutes yep. it's like that's not a full special like when you like industry standard if you're headlining a club minimums 45 minutes and i don't know why that just annoys me like full specials like dude i saw one the other day it's 23 minutes full special 
Like that's not even a feature set. No. Like most feature sets are 30 minutes. But um, yeah, kind of a jab at that. And also just like, all right, we're going to be here a while, pack a lunch, settle in. But uh, yeah, and it's just a dumb, it was just kind of a throwaway line. But uh, I think a buddy of mine was like, that, that'd be a good name for your special. I was like, okay. That's such so, a yeah. male comic thing of like your buddy says, you're like, yeah, that works. I'll just call it that. Sure. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, folks, we hoped you enjoyed your apps. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. All right, folks, we are back, and now it is time for the entrees. Okay, Dave, I know you're uh, just a religious listener to the podcast, so I don't have to explain this to you, but I'm just going to for posterity. Uh, So this is the section that everybody loves because this is all the personal stories, and this is where we get into, yes, folks, we will talk about him being a police officer. We're going to get there, but we always ask the same questions, and we ask them in order. So what was your first job ever where the government was taking taxes out of your money? 16 years old, I was a cook. An old country buffet in Canton, Georgia. Okay. And my very first day I spilled, I was carrying a tray, like a big tray, probably eight to 10 pounds of fried chicken, spilt it all over the disgusting dishwashing area. And uh, yeah, I I don't, not only first day, probably first hour. And I was just like, oh man, okay. And my boss just rolled his eyes. Like, don't worry about it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, 16 years old, just cooking, not even really cooking, just opening giant cans of green beans and niblet corn and throwing them in a steam tray and like, all right, I'm part of the workforce now. Oh, <laughs> do you wait? So when you dropped all the fried chicken, was your boss like pick it up? We're serving it or did you have to chuck it all? I think they picked up some of the top parts. I knew you were yeah. going to say that. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of uh-huh. wasted food if you're going to. I yeah. mean, I'm kind of on their side on that one. OK, <laughs> how did you drop it? What happened? I think I didn't yell corner i think you know i was new <laughs> to the restaurant industry so i didn't know you're supposed to yell corner and i just ran right into some dude and oh. of course he was pissed and sorry man okay so <laughs> i knew here i didn't know you're not supposed to drop all the chicken. all the chicken i had no idea yeah, if i'd have known that was frowned i upon, wouldn't have done right? it <laughs> mm-hmm. okay so why a buffet because i don't think i've had any guests on that have ever worked at a buffet that feels like just a constant barrage of chaos because it's you just have to yeah. like re especially in the south are, were you yeah. just refilling food like just every five seconds? Yeah, and I remember part of my job would uh, they'd call it going on patrol. I would, uh, which is ironic. I yeah. do later, but uh, I'd have to, you know, if it was slow, I would just go out and kind of look at the buffet and see what's running low and what needs to be changed and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was really, especially lunchtime. It was just a hamster wheel, just just loads of people coming in slopping on mashed potatoes and meatloaf and fried chicken and yeah it, uh, it was it was never ending did you ever, how long did you last at that job i did that one about six months probably oh yeah. wow and were you on the yeah. fryer at all or was it mostly just opening vegetables and putting them in a yeah, steam tray yeah, i would do some fryer stuff yeah yeah i think they started me off washing lettuce and then they moved me up to fry no i'm quoting uh <laughs> coming to america but uh, yeah I, kinda, I, I feel like i did a little bit of everything in the kitchen dishwashing fry station you know, cold station, you know, desserts, whatever. Did you actually like it or did you only last six months? Cause you were like the same for me. It was okay. Um, I think I remember I worked so I worked a lot of jobs in high school uh, and a lot of the, a lot of them were food related. And I think um, I just remember fantasizing about having a minimum wage job where 
no food was involved. Even though I love food and I love to cook, I was just, oh, you mean the per- you work at AT&T or you work at Walmart? You don't have to go in. You don't smell like chicken fat all day? Boy, that's a good gig. So I think I was immediately kind of looking for jobs that, uh, you know, I wouldn't just smell of chicken all day. And yeah. I think, uh, you know what? I, I It was a lateral move, kind of. My next job was at TCBY Yogurt. And I was like, well, it's still food, kind of, but at least it's not as greasy and smelly as uh, the buffet. Would you get sick of smell? I had a friend who worked at an ice cream place and like she could have free ice cream all the time. And she was like really all about that for the first like three weeks. And then she said by week yep. four, she was like, I, if I never touch ice cream again, it'll be too soon. Is that, was that yeah, true for you? Same thing. Yeah, I was, I thought it was the greatest job in the world, you know, for the first month. But uh, after that, it was just like, yeah, I, I don't want to see any more chocolate vanilla, vanilla swirl. Oh, yeah, that's very specific. <laughs> okay, so how many customer jobs have you had total? And feel free to count. Oh, good. Customer jobs? I'll, I don't know that. Uh, we were on the Stonebergs a couple of years ago. We were going through our complete resume. And I think to date, uh, without other than the self-employed stuff with podcast sure. and comedy, yeah. uh, I've had 33 jobs. Woohoo! I think and I would say probably half of those were customer service at Dang. least. Yeah, a lot of restaurants, grocery stores, a lot of bag boy stuff. Uh, my father owned a firewood company. We would uh, deliver firewood to barbecue restaurants. Oh, I bet you um, were delivering all the time because they go through oh, firewood yeah. like crazy. Yeah, yeah, and especially in Georgia. Um, but yeah, and that was actually fun. But um yeah, so many customer service jobs. Um, yeah, waited tables. You did. Waited the Longhorn Steakhouse, Applebee's. Ooh. I was, uh, I I was a good server, and then I was, uh, you know, I, I paid attention to detail, but I didn't have the temperament for it. Why? I just, uh, um, just you know, giving good service, working hard. $90 tab, you're going to give me a dollar. I almost got fired one time when a guy left a dollar on 90 and I followed him out in the parking lot. Now, it wasn't confrontational or aggressive. I was a smart ass. I just go, oh, hey, man, sorry, you left this on the table. And he goes, uh, oh, it's your tip. And I, I just dropped it. I go, that's not a tip. That's an insult. Thanks for coming. And Good he went and complained. I almost got fired. But you're like, piss off dude yeah a dollar i'd rather you leave me nothing i say this all the so time condescending. yes yeah. or if they leave changed does would that drive you nuts oh that would drive me nuts and this is what you i almost got fired for this too and you, you you've worked as a server you understand this uh scenario all right uh your bill is um I, i'm trying to do the math right now but let's say your bill is uh twenty dollars and ten cents right and you leave me and you and you give me thirty well, I'm going to bring you back 10. I'm going to pretend it was $20 even, not 2010. I'm going to give you 10 back in hopes that you're going to give me a tip. Well, many times that would happen. I'd give them, you know, a little more change than they deserved, thinking I'd get it back in the tip. And then you get stiffed. And I, so many times I'd have to go, like, confront them. Again, not aggressive. I go, oh, excuse me. Um, Actually, I'm sorry. I gave you a 10 uh, even though I really should have given you nine uh, nine um, you don't have to tip. That's fine, but also I'm not going to cover that extra ten cents. So I'm going to need another dime. You Good. Know, put them on the spot, embarrass them. But Good. Like, dude, that's so like, wild. And what would they would they yeah. just sh- like find a dime and that would be all they would hand you, Dave? Yeah. And then they act like I'm being petty. No, like, well, you're here's not. Your dime. Yeah. 
no, A, you're not going to tip me. Okay, that's one thing, but I sure as hell ain't coming out of my pocket. You know, I I shortchanged myself thinking I'd get it back in the tip. But if there's no tip, guess what? Let's let's get this to the penny. I'm 100% the same way. And what you st- what still will never stop driving me nuts is when people do the dine and dash thing thinking it's cute. There's a lot of restaurants that have the policy that the server is now responsible for that entire that's, tab. Yes. Have you ever yes. worked somewhere where that was true? I can't remember, but... Probably not, because I feel like yeah. I would remember. A thousand there's percent. no way in hell. I mean, what, I'm supposed to be a security guard now, too? This is my like, point. This is my exact no. point. Yes, I no. can't do both yeah. jobs. Hire someone. Mm-hmm. You know how there's, I forget where, it, I think it was at, um, oh, I better not say the name because I'm going to sound like an asshole. There's a restaurant in Los Angeles that has closed a couple locations recently where you would have to show them your receipt that you had paid uh-huh. before you'd be allowed to leave. And there would be security yeah. at the door that just made yeah. sure. There's comedy club. Um, the improv is that way in in mm-hmm. in. LA like you have to show them that you've paid which is totally fair the number of people that would walk out of the store without paying but it's like we had your cards but we would get bunk cards all the time and like I mean the comedy started policy where we would have to cover their tabs if they if a manager Mm -hmm. felt like being generous we wouldn't but like yeah if they didn't we were yeah we were on the hook for it which is wild yeah Yeah, I had a lot of problems with the whole restaurant industry just the the whole layout uh I don't know about you, but when I was working at Longhorn, I made two two thirteen, two thirteen. Yes, sure, whatever. That's fine. Here's the problem: uh, when you cut me and then expect me to go roll silverware for an hour at two thirteen, I I I butted heads with every manager. I was like, hey, if you want to clock me out and clock me back in at a, at a reasonable rate, I'll sit here all night and roll your damn silverware. But I'm not rolling silverware for two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. And they just were like, oh, this guy's a troublemaker. I'm like. You wouldn't do it, and their their story was well. The two thirteen hour, we you know you make up for more than that, but I don't know. It was almost like a we're giving you the opportunity to make tips, and it all balances out. Like no, the hell it don't. And no, it, it doesn't. And also, I fucking I've had a manager that made the same argument. She make she would make us clock out completely and roll silverware, and I was too young to know. We'd roll silverware completely off the clock because she, her argument was you just made a grip of money in tips. And my thing is is the customer then is my employer. The restaurant exactly. is not my employer. Me. You didn't pay me. Yeah. The number yeah. of zeroed out checks I've received. Fuck you. Yeah. I'm not on the payroll. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dave, I could. Scream yeah. If you really want to play that game, how about you just cut me down to zero yeah. and I'll only make tips. And as soon as I'm cut, and not able to make tips. Guess what? I'm going home. Also, you know, it's not. Oh. I'm not going to do any side work because, again, yeah. the customer's yeah. my my boss. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, the, the whole restaurant industry. I mean, I'm not saying everyone, but like especially the corporate stuff. There's a reason why they hire 19 year olds. You know, bingo. We, we're going to take advantage of these young kids that don't know any better. Bingo. Did you ever get into a situation with a manager where you were like you would put a line in the sand and say, I'm not doing this, you know, sort of exploitive labor and they would threaten to fire you? Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't care. Fire me. I don't care. I'll go across the street and get another job tomorrow. Watch me like, do that right now. Because I was a little older. Um, when I was waiting tables, I was like 23, 24. So, you know, there's a lot of 17, 18, 19 year olds. And, you know, by comparison, even though in reality, that's not a big gap. But just like in high school, you know, an 18 year old is so much more mature than a 15 year old. But, yeah, I was just like, yeah, I'm not. I'm not these kids you're going to take advantage of. I'm a grown man. I'm not rolling silverware for $2.13 an hour. Good you for you, Take Dave. it or leave Good for you. I'm impressed. Okay. It's a miracle I never got fired. I know. I was was stubborn. I was 
I'm a man of principle. Like, come on. Oh, that's going to that's gonna send me to an early grave. I'm a woman of principle, too. <laughs> um, so when you had, when you worked at, like, because you worked at a bunch of corporate chains, did you have <laughs> metrics that you would have to hit? Or like, like, I worked for Hard Rock, and we used to have to drop these, like, rock shop menus to force people to buy T-shirts they would never wear again. Did you have mm-hmm. those kinds of metrics at Applebee's or, like, at Longhorn of, like, hey, we've got the fucking flaming whatever bullshit good cocktail or whatever. Why don't you get that instead of a soda? Was it that kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, and we were, uh, I'm sure you've experienced this, but we were all scared to death of the concept of the secret shopper. Oh, God, they beat that we, into you. What is that? And people, you know, because, yeah, we'd have a certain spiel that we'd have to give. You know, hey, I'm Dave. Here's our specials. Here's our blah, blah, blah. And then if, you know, if you got tagged, you know, sometimes they'd be like, hey, guess what? You may not know it, but a week ago you had a secret shopper. And they said that you didn't suggest the flaming grilled shrimp. And I'm like, oh, shit. Well, what are we going to do now? And, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was just, ugh. And then I would also work in the kitchen at a lot of these places. And uh, like, as a chef, like, I understand the concept of like food cost. And, you know, you want to, and I'm even in my personal life, I hate to waste food. But like, you know, you'd have the gallon jug of ranch dressing mm. and you know I, I thought i got all of it out pretty good into the little cambro or something and then the the gm would just come and he would dig through the trash <gasps> and pull out these empty ranch and it, like you know, there's at least two ramekins worth of ranch left in there let's let's get all that out and then we would find out that he would you know and i, and I don't blame him if i was a manager i'd probably do the same thing but it, it was all based on his bonus and his incentives as far as like the food cost metrics and stuff. So yeah, I just remember being like, you're serious. Like this is like, it's almost completely clean. Like I get if I left, you know, 10 ounces in there or whatever, but this guy was like, and he had like all these techniques with a spatula and stuff. And like, all right, dude. (laughs) I, I think it's such a backward system. I, we've had a guest on who talked about how, because of the bonus that the managers would get, he worked at La Pan Quotidian in, I forget where. And he said that as soon as they switched over to corporate, they had metrics of, okay, if you go under your takeout containers and like takeout utensils budget, you got a bonus. So they would purposefully Mm -hmm. uh, over order and then hide stock. And then Ah. they could go back the next quarter and be like, Hey, we actually have extra. We over ordered or whatever. And they'd get bonuses. But he said that because of that, people would order to go food that they were putting in tinfoil and just giving the people tinfoil. Could you imagine getting like a a meal with like mashed potatoes or what? I don't know what the hell they serve there. It's mostly sandwiches, but in tinfoil and then them being like, oh, sorry, this is just how we serve. What? Like (laughs) that structure doesn't work. Okay. No. So of all of your customer service jobs, and we're going to get into your uh, the job that everyone's wanting to hear about, but what was your favorite of all of the jobs? Take comedy off the table, because I think there's a version of comedy that's customer service. I enjoyed working at grocery stores. I thought I, that's what you were going to say. Yeah. That's so funny. Why? It was, I enjoyed, you know, and I, I worked in like the dairy department. I, I worked around, but I think, um, I don't even think they have that anymore. I never see it around here, but just, I was a bag boy at three or four different grocery stores and I just, you know, I, I had a bunch of friends that would work there. I worked at this one. I worked at a couple of corporate ones, but I worked at one that was kind of, or two different ones that were kind of mom and pop, independently owned. And it was just such a cool laid back vibe. It was just stand around. You know, I didn't make much money, but we'd make minimum wage plus tips. And I remember uh, if wherever, like I said, I had a bunch of friends that would work there too. And we had a little racket going, me and this one guy. 
Uh, we're 16, 17 years old. And if ever we had a big order that required two guys, uh, two of us to carry it out, um, we'd always just uh, improvise fake hardship dialogue. Shut up. Like you wouldn't. Be, Dave. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There'd be a sweet old lady. You know, we're taking Dave. out his friend. And he'd just be like, so, man, how's your son doing? I'm like, ah, he's, you know, we got to take him to the doctor. You know, it's tough being a teen dad. But, uh, you know, and she'd be like, oh, my God, in, in hopes that they would tip us more. So, yeah, just would, a little gaslighting bastard. Would it you know, work? That yeah, a lot of times it would. <laughs> that's yeah. terrible. So you were a teen yeah. dad. That's good. You got to start mm -hmm. acting. Yeah. Then that's good. Mm -hmm. So where, uh, because I think there there are people that do bagging in L.A., when you go to the grocery store and you get someone to bag your groceries and they offer to take it to your car, do you A, let them and B, tip them? I don't think anyone has ever offered. Really? Yeah. I, yeah. Out here. Like, that's why I feel like maybe it's an antiquated thing, but I can't remember anybody ever offering. They just, if you've got a big load, they just load it into my regular buggy that I was doing the whole thing with. But yeah, I can't remember anybody. And we would like when I did it, we had the different carts, not the regular customer shopping cart, but we had more of a upright vertical thing that you'd have to kind of it have a couple different levels. But yeah, I, I haven't seen those in years. I but yeah, I, seen those. I really don't think anybody's offered to take my groceries out in LA. So that's why I just thought maybe it's a union thing, you know, industry wide thing where they don't do that anymore. I don't know. That's so, so. wild. And now I have to think about it. Um, mm -hmm. okay. But would you, you would tip though, if you were going to like do that? Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, you know, I, yeah. But also like, I don't know. I was just, even if they offered a big, no, I, I got it. Yeah. You know, especially in a buggy or, or cart. People make, my wife makes fun of me for calling it a buggy, but a shopping cart. But, um, yeah, I, I honestly, I've been out here 11 years. I don't think anybody has ever offered to take my groceries out. So Damn, I just I assume that was an old thing. Yeah, I got to think about it. I feel like, maybe I don't know, maybe maybe we just look too capable, Dave. We are too yeah. physically fit and they <laughs> yeah. don't want to help us because they don't need to. Okay. Yeah, that guy's got it. He's good. He's good. He's he's super strong. Okay, so now I think I know what you're going to say to this, uh, but no, I'm not trying to lead you. Um, what was your least favorite of all of these jobs that you've had? I'm trying to think if there's one other than the obvious one. Okay. Um, I sold, uh, also when I was 16, I sold, I was a telemarketer. I tried to sell grave plots over the phone. Dave. Did that. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. So you had to try to convince Cherokee people. Memorial Park in Canton, Georgia, big cemetery. And then I had a script. And I thought it was great because I got to work alone. I would come in at like 6 p.m. And then my boss would leave. And I had a key. And I would just be by myself in this little uh, office. Um <laughs> At the at the cemetery, what's what are we talking? There's another about? word than cemetery. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, mortuary. I don't know. What do we? Yeah, call it? maybe. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, just this little freestanding house and office, and then we had like the big, you know, thirty acre cemetery. But I'd come in at six, and as soon as I get there, he'd leave, and I had this script, and then like you know, just I don't know where they got the phone numbers, but just you know, pages and pages of potential customers. Hi, this is Dave from Cherokee Memorial Park. The inevitable is going to happen to us all, but click. You know, I would, I never, I worked, I did that job six months, never sold one. Not one. Didn't sell, not one. And, <laughs> wow. You know, 
every day my boss is like, I'm like, man, I'm trying, I, you know. How did you deal with that much rejection? This must have set you up to be able to handle comedy because that's that yeah. amount of rejection in a row for six months. Like people get yeah. rejected for, to ask, if they're asking someone out for a date and it ruins them. I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess because it wasn't necessarily personal, but at a certain point I would take it personally. I'd be like, why am I not able to do this? Yeah. Yeah. And, and eventually I would just start altering the script, you know, because I know you're going <laughs> to hang up. You know, hey, it's this day from Cherokee Memorial Park. Are you going to die soon? We're all gonna die. It's going to happen. Click. You know. I love it. Are you going to die soon? Maybe. <laughs> so that was your least favorite. Now, mm-hmm. I have to ask. With your near near death experiences when you were working as a police officer, are you comfortable talking about those or are they too sad to talk about? Uh, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to say I'm over it, but uh, you know, I've processed a lot of it. So. Okay. What uh, happened? Uh, two separate incidents. They, they both were just, uh, ironically fights, physical fights, both times the guy trying to take my gun Ooh. and, uh, he wasn't, they weren't trying to take it to, to go pawn it. Uh, but yeah, two different times I got in a fight. I'm literally fighting over my own gun and uh wow yeah yeah i was got stabbed twice oh ooh, uh, ooh. yeah I, I didn't really those don't count those aren't the two experiences i'm talking about but yeah the two about a year apart just two different uh just shit kicking scraps and dudes i'm literally trying to get this guy off of my gun and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. But, uh, Were they like traffic stops or something? Or what made you physically interacting with these people? One was a traffic stop and one was uh, we were serving a warrant. Uh, we were assisting the sheriff's department. I worked for the police department, but the sheriff's department were in charge of like serving warrants. You know, they find out somebody's got a, a warrant for whatever and they find out where he's living. Uh, I keep saying he or, or she or they, even though. It was almost always he. A guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then, they, you know, they'd have to go and we would have to back them up a lot of times. So, yeah, the one time this guy was going to jail, he had like an armed robbery warrant. And he'd already been in and out of jail. And after the fact, we found out that uh, he, he got like a 40 year sentence. And that's why that was his motivation to not go to jail tonight. So I'll do whatever I got to do. And then the other one was uh, just a traffic stop, similar situation, run the license, find out that, oh, shit, this guy's got a warrant, you know. Even though I stopped him for a tag violation, something very minute, you run the license, find out he's got a warrant. Guess what, buddy? You're going to jail. And there was a technique that we always did. Anytime you're interacting with anybody, but especially someone where I know he's got a warrant, but maybe he doesn't know I know yet, if he's outside the car, you say, hey, man, before we start talking, uh, you might turn around, just want to pat you down. And we'd always use these techniques to kind of disarm them verbally a little bit. Like, hey, man, I just want to make sure you don't have any bombs or bazookas or anything on you. And hopefully, you know, just pat them down. And then while you're patting them down, then you handcuff, like unexpectedly. But the last thing you ever want to do to a criminal is tell him he's under arrest before you have handcuffs on him. Because you and I might be like, oh, you know, the average person you'd like to think the average person like an inter- a negative interaction with police is a big deal. You know, if, like, Oh man, this is going to ruin my week or ruin my month. But some of these career criminals, they're like, they have no qualms with just fighting, running, shooting, whatever. But my point is uh, the second one, I was trying to pat this guy down. 
And my stupid partner's the one that told him he had a warrant and he's going to prison. And when he hears that, the fight is on. And uh, yeah, so. Did you change partners <laughs> after that? Yeah, boy, I had some real stupid partners. Uh, <laughs> I, I just can't. We imagine. didn't have like partners per se. We ran, we, we would ride solo, but we had what was called beat partners. Sure. And uh, not to bore you with all these details, but like you've got the whole precinct, the whole, you know, if you live in this county. My, I worked for Cobb County in Atlanta, Georgia. And in that county, uh, we had five different precincts or five different territories. So I worked at the third precinct. And within that precinct, then you've got 10 or 12 beats. So the county's divided up into territories or precincts. And then each precinct is divided up into specific beats. And if I'm 313 beat, that means I've got these couple of little neighborhoods. And my beat partner would be the neighboring beat. And if I got a dangerous call or whatever, it was his response, the beat partner's responsibility to go back you up and vice versa. So you kind of look out for each other. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of times you just get paired up with some knucklehead. It was just all kind of just, I mean, there, I, it's weird, the whole cop thing. I see both sides of it. Like I worked with, not all cops are bastards. I know we like to think that, uh, but a lot of them are. But a lot of them were just regular people like me that just needed a job. But uh, yeah, if you get paired up with just some hothead or some, you know, just jackass, you know, the stereotypical jerk cop, like not only is that harmful for the general public, but it, it gets your partner, you know, just like I said, this guy, he was so excited to tell this dude that he's going to jail that he did it prematurely before I had the cuffs on. And when he told him that, then the fight's on. And I'm like, thanks a lot. Thank you. Know, I, I, I had it under control. I was about to you know, trick him into putting cuffs on him while I was patting him down. But uh, yeah, so that that was always the worst thing you could do is tell somebody they're going to jail before you've got them in control. Of course. And I just, I can't like... I know he's going to jail for 40 years. Yeah. He's got nothing to lose. Comply. Yeah. No. Yeah, and that's the scariest thing is someone who has nothing to lose. Yeah, because that's the that's a longer sentence than 25 to life. So in 25 yeah. to life is a, a traditional homicide. Whoa, mm -hmm. I yeah. I would I would have had a hard time not putting hands on that beat partner. That that's well, wild yeah. to oh, me. Yeah. So yeah. so did yeah. he go to shoot you and that was the thing where you were like, "Oh, this and then your partner just watched it all happen or did it take two of you to take this guy down?" Uh, it took two of us to take him down. Yeah, he he didn't get my gun. Fortunately, but he was fighting for it. Ugh. And uh, yeah. And had he got it, you know, be it. like I said, he, he wasn't just collecting guns. He was, <laughs> it wasn't, he it wasn't to pawn. So, okay. Yeah. So what attracted you to becoming a cop? I, you had said you just needed a job, but was there, did you have cops in your family? Was there some sort of, or a friend or somebody that was like, Hey, you should try this out. I had a friend, um, before I was a cop, I was a radio DJ and I loved that. I did that for four years and it was right around, uh, it's weird to say the turn of the century, but it's right around 2000 when uh, a lot of radio stations were consolidating, you know, these big media conglomerates uh, that combined with the technology where um, DJs were just, it was kind of like the AI stuff now, sure. like P DJs were losing their jobs because uh, we had this technology called tracking. And what, what that meant was like one DJ and I, I used to track some too, but in typically traditionally, if I'm a DJ, I work from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. and I'm really in the studio for those four hours live in real time. Well, around 2000, the, the concept of tracking became really popular where I go in 
for a couple hours and I just do the talk breaks for like oh, a whole day. Okay. You know, like typically like a lot of the radio stations I worked at, we would do talk breaks four or five times an hour. So, you know, five an hour, they would have one person come in and do a 24 hour shift, you know, meaning you just do, you know, just do these talk breaks for the six o'clock hour, knock out these talk breaks for the seven o'clock hour and so on and so on. So a lot of people were just losing their jobs and getting put out of work. And that happened to me as well. So, and I had already moved a lot. I moved eight or nine times in four years, just trying to, radio is a very nomadic profession. You know, you start off at these like little bitty AM stations, you know, where maybe you're literally making minimum wage and you kind of work your way up to a bigger market or a bigger station. And um, so, yeah, just getting tired of being so nomadic and knowing, seeing the writing on the wall uh, after I got laid off, I didn't even try to get another radio job. So that's when I started waiting tables at Longhorn. And at the same time, I was I was dating a lady and we got engaged. And I was like, well, I'm not a DJ anymore. I don't want to be a assistant kitchen manager at Longhorn. <laughs> I need and I I dropped out of college to go to broadcasting school, so I didn't have a degree to fall back onto. Uh, so I was 23, engaged. I just needed a job that could you know give me a 401k and some insurance. And my friend, uh, he was like a lifelong cop. I mean, I think he's still doing it 30 years later, but he worked at this particular department and he was like, hey, we're hiring. And back then I was uh, I was not like the label straight edge, but at 23, I'd never drank, never smoked, did drugs, never got into any trouble. So he's like, oh, you, you'll pass the exam. Like they'll hire you easily because you know, you're not going to fail a, a drug test. You don't have a criminal record. Uh, and he's like, you know, they start you off at, you know, whatever it was. I'm like, oh, okay, that's decent money. So, yeah, it was just it was just a job that wasn't waiting tables. And uh, I was like, okay, I could I could put up with this for a few years until I really figure out what I want to do long term. And, um, yeah, it, it's just it's just one of the worst jobs. I mean, there were people who were just cut out for it, but I just wasn't like every night you see the worst side of humanity every night no one's ever excited to see the, a cop if, if, if a cop's in your living room it's probably the worst night of your year or your life you know it's every night you're just dealing and i grew up a very normal you know middle working class family and like i just it was such a eye-opener like oh i for i didn't realize people live like this you know just going through to crack houses and it just every night it was just something insane and um you know it ended uh involuntarily we can get to that if you want let's go <laughs> but yeah almost from like six months in i was plotting an exit strategy like this is not for me i gotta figure out something to do and i did it for another three or four years until it ended abruptly so were you so it was something that was like paying the bills but as you're because i think this is true in any sort of and I can't I'm not at all comparing the complexities of being a cop with like working at a restaurant. But I think if you're in a toxic environment that everybody has normalized as like, no, this yeah. is how it just is, that it's yeah. so easy to get sucked into that fucking vortex and be like, I guess this is just how life is. And then you mm -hmm. just start losing time and then time speeds up, but also slows down. It's this wild like juxtaposition of like, 
okay, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And then it's another Christmas goes by and another Christmas. And you're like, well, I guess this is just life. It sort of becomes a sentence. Did it start to feel like that? Yeah, it, absolutely. And what else it does is because when I'm at work eight, 10 hours every night, I'm de- like I said, I'm dealing with, I'm not saying everybody I dealt with was a criminal or, or you know, a piece of crap, but like you deal with so many uh, criminals and criminally minded people that it bleeds over into your normal life. Like yeah. I just assumed everybody, even when I was off or shopping at the store with my girlfriend, like I just, oh, I just start judging everyone because it, it really uh, alters your view of humanity. But you have to realize that like, okay, that's just this small demographic or percentage of people I deal with in my job. But, you know, I'd like to think that most of the world is law-abiding, decent-hearted people. But when all you do 40 hours a week is deal with people that are lying to you or deceiving you or trying to fight you or trying to run away from you, it just bleeds over into all aspects of your life. And like, it just became a miserable existence. I, I started drinking too much. Um, yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, it just, it was just a bummer. It was just a, a, a four and a half year bummer. And, uh, you know, and I, not woe was me. Like I signed up for it. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it was just like, good God. I don't, I don't know how the, these officers who do it 20, 30 years, I don't know how they do it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset that I didn't have. And uh, I didn't want to become that, that guy. I didn't want to become just the old cynical curmudgeon. Everybody's a criminal. I hate everybody. Everybody's out to get me. And it just, uh, it affected my relationship. It re- affected my relationship with my family. It just, I just didn't, I wasn't mature enough emotionally to cope with it and compartmentalize. I was, it just, it just overtook my whole personality. Well, and not to talk you out of your truth, but I do think that I don't know if compartmentalization speaks to emotional maturity. I think it just speaks to coping. And I think if you're a sensitive artist person, which I would most of the comics in my life are extraordinarily sensitive people, which makes them good at comedy. I think that they're you're you're being asked to shut off something that's fundamentally a part of who you are. And I think that's two, those are not worlds that can coexist because I'm not saying that all cops are insensitive. I'm not trying to make sweeping statements, but Mm -hmm. I do think to be able to survive in that environment, I don't know that it's emotional maturation so much as it is just hardening of like, Mm -hmm. I'm already not all that sensitive and now I feel nothing. I mean, I, otherwise I don't know how you, I don't know how you get through it every day and not believe that everybody's terrible and everybody's lying to you and everybody's. So what is the weirdest lie that someone told you that you were like, this is such bullshit, like they're holding a gun and they're like, I don't have a gun. Like, was there anything that insanely obvious where you were like, yo, I can't even like where you wanted to laugh where you're like, this is an insane lie. Well, it's a cliche amongst cops, but it's true. This happened a dozen times. Just, you know, you find crack in someone's pants. Oh, these aren't even my pants. I've had people (laughs) with a straight face tell me these aren't my pants. Well, that's unfortunate because, um, <laughs> but no, I had a guy one time, this dude beat his roommate to death with a ball peen hammer. We get there about a minute after it happened. He comes running out the trailer into the woods. I chase him. I tackle him. I get him down. He's still holding the hammer. And he just keeps telling me, uh, I'm not going to do any accents or anything, but he, he wasn't a, a English wasn't his first language. 
but he just kept telling me with like very calm. He wasn't even excited. Like it's okay. It's no problem. It's okay. It's no problem. I'm like, this is a huge, problem. there's a problem. We have a problem. <laughs> this is a big problem yeah. actually. Yeah. Oh and then the most annoying call I ever had, uh, we got a lot of this kind of stuff too. It was either like just an absolute catastrophe emergency or the most benign BS. Like, why did you call the cops for that? I, I show up to this house uh, for, a, it was a theft. So <clears throat> this lady answers the door. She's about 40, 50 years old. And I see two teenage girls inside. And I go, hey, uh, someone call the cops. What, what's going on? And just real nonchalantly, she just said, um, that one took that one's cell phone. Dave. And I go, excuse, excuse me? And she's like eating a bowl of cereal, watching TV. That one took that one's cell phone. And I, this is already a long, bad day. I just walked away. I didn't even say anything. Are you joking? You just got in your car. You're like, I can't even deal yeah. with it. I am living. In 813. The, the code for no action <laughs> taken or no report or investigation is 813. Oh, okay. 108 means I'm back in service. 13 means no action taken. 3113, show me 10813. And I just walked off. I, like towards the end, I, I got a lot of that kind of stuff. One time, uh, went to this trailer park. The third time in like three hours on Friday and Saturday night, a lot of the trailer parks were just popping off. Third time I went to this same trailer, and it was guys outside the trailer in a truck just blasting their music. Two times before that night, I went by. Hey, guys, I know it's the weekend. I get it. we got to tone it down a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. Went back the second time. Guys, it's me again. What's up? You know, they keep calling. Please turn it. Okay, okay. Third time in about three hours, and I just had enough. Um I reached in, grabbed the keys out of the car. There's a big chain link barbed wire fence. 10, 8, 13. <laughs> For those that didn't see what Dave just did, he grabbed the keys and chucked them over the barbed wire <laughs> fence. And if you haven't been able to follow, that means the music's over because it was coming yeah, out of a yeah. truck. Good yeah. job, Dave. Yeah. Were they so pissed? Yeah. yeah. But you really? came there three I mean, times. It was just like, like, shocked. You believe he did that? Yeah, yeah, they were shocked. Okay. Dude, come on. I mean, what what's a call you felt good about that you were like, I'm actually glad to be a cop right now? I saved a Conquer Spaniel uh, in a, trapped inside a burning car. Oh my gosh, That's, Dave. Yeah, yeah, that was, I gave CPR to a little two-year-old that survived. Oh. Uh, I gave CPR to a three-year-old that didn't. Oh. But uh, yeah, the, the little kid cpr and the, and the dog I, I helped deliver a baby one time you did yeah wow yeah. you're such a cliche it was, dave it was gross but uh, yeah it was very messy uh, confirming emts and route <laughs> 10 8 13 <laughs> little help here yeah 10 8 13 she's fine <laughs> she's all right oh i love it okay well what's the weirdest thing you've been asked to do whilst on the clock at any of these jobs I picked Gwen Stefani up from the airport and drove her to her hotel when I was working in radio. That was her and her, at the time, goober boyfriend, the guy from Bush. Yeah, his name? Gavin Rosdale. Um, yeah, I picked them up from the airport and drove them to their hotel when I was just a low-level, entry-level guy at a radio station one time. I mean, not that that was weird, but I was just like, huh, I would have never guessed. That's pretty weird. I'd be driving Gwen Stefani around. Yeah, it, no, that's <laughs> weird. You get to That gets to be true. Okay. Yeah, but... 
Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more weird stuff. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, the closing bit on my special is uh, 100% true. And uh, I won't do the whole bit or anything, but uh, literally my third day out of the police academy, uh, I was in the academy for like four or five months. And then you get released and assigned to a precinct. And then for another four or five months, you ride uh, with another officer, a FTO field training officer. So uh, third day out of the academy, third day with my FTO. And uh, just long story short, I won't do the whole bit, but I, I had to go retrieve a human head and put it in a trash bag. So that's definitely the weirdest thing. Yeah. Okay. That's much more weird than driving Gwen Stefani around. I'm, I, 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 they don't tie. They're not the same level of odd. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. folks, I forgot about that. Go listen to uh, Pack a Lunch to find out the context of Dave grabbing a head. That's uh, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Was there? Yeah, ever- that's a that's an Easter egg hunt nobody wants to win. It turns out. Uh, turns out there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we'll wait to find out if you did find it. It was there ever an incident that made them ask to speak to your manager or someone in charge at any of these jobs? Oh sure, yeah. Oh sure, um, <laughs> it, yeah. At Longhorn, um, this isn't, you know, as a Southern straight white male, I I really do try to be aware and suppress my uh, my dickhead tough guy mentality. This wasn't me trying to be a tough guy. Uh, But like I said, I'm a man of principle and I see stuff a lot of times I, I, I can't bite my tongue. But yeah, I was waiting tables at Longhorn and my table, I you know, I. I'm in the back, you know, doing something. And I just look, this dude, this redneck dude, about 40 years old, sitting there with his family, wife, and two little kids, uh, boom, backhands his little kid. No. The kid flies out. Oh, my. kid hits his head on a neighboring table. No, no. I hope you called CPS. No. I tell my manager. He goes, well, I didn't see it. I can't do anything about it. Fuck I was like, you're not going to do anything. I was like, you need to call the cops. I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll be a witness. I saw him, bam, two or three year old kid falls out of the high chair. I can't. Hits his head on the neighboring table. Nope, 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 nope. And again, wasn't trying to be a hothead or tough guy, but I was 23. I didn't give a shit. You know, (laughs) this is right before I was a cop, but you know, I was 23. I I just, I wasn't worried about much. And (laughs) They're leaving. And again, I wasn't my whole technique. And I still use this to this day. I used it the other night. Like when as a guy, when my instinct is to like bow up and be aggressive, sometimes you catch people off guard by not being aggressive. Sure. But uh, they were leaving and I just stood in front of them in the in the uh, lobby. I go, hey, did you guys enjoy your meal? Goes, yeah. I said, hey, man, do me a favor. Next time you come here and you want to smack your kid around, uh, do it somewhere else or I'm going to be smacking your ass around. Wow. And just stared at it. Like, please invite me outside. I was just hot, you know. It's like I just and not. I don't have kids. I don't really have an emotion. But like, I'm a human being. You just and it and it wasn't me crossing the line. No. None of my business. Like, you know, there's those gray areas where I'm not a parent. I, you know, whatever. There's no gray there. There's this no gray assault. there. That's this assault. Child abuse. Yeah. Ooh. And he just looked at me like, how the why the hell you ain't gonna talk to me like that? Yes, I am. And he went and told me. Went and told my manager, the same manager who just, who wouldn't do anything about it, told me that I can't talk to customers like that. Fuck you, I was dude. like, dude, I only talked to him like that because you didn't do anything. Good for you, I was you, like, I'm Dave. not going to sit here and watch a guy just beat his kid in public. And uh, I almost, and I had a meeting with the general manager. They, they were prepared to fire me. To fire like, you? Fire me. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll make 213 an hour somewhere else. Literally anywhere <laughs> else. Even, 
yeah, I think I even, you know, I told the GM, I was like, just because this guy's too big of a sissy to do anything about it, like, I, I, I'm not going to just look away from that. And again, I didn't, I didn't swing on him. I didn't cuss at him. I didn't, you know, it's just like, well, just do me a favor. If you do that again, I'm going to be the one smacking your ass around. I guarantee you. And also, Ooh. like, I, I, oh, I, I, I want to say so many things. Yeah. I just think that, like, I, oh, oh, that just that that is so upsetting. That's so upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, good. Yeah, I'm glad he needed to speak to your manager so that he had to look <laughs> look somebody else in the face and say, "Oh yeah, because yeah. I beat the shit out of an innocent child." That I happen yeah. to. Oh, oh, Dave. It's you've seen a lot. <laughs> I don't know how you're not bitter. You've seen a lot of things. I would be pretty bitter. Yeah. Well, uh, do you think it's all? It, it is. It is at all weird. This is this. Honest to God, this question was written before you gave the answer. You just gave the amount of power customers wield. Do you think it's w- weird at all? The amount of power that customers have. Yeah, yeah. The customer's not always right. Thank you. You know, I mean, I get that concept of you know good service, but like, it's the same the same thing I deal with as, as a comedian. Some people think that. I just want all the fans. I want any and all fans. Like, no. No. I want I want cool people to like me. I don't want shitheads to be a fan, you know? Yeah. No, like you get that all the time. Oh, you just fame hungry blah. No, I'm I'm not fan. I mean, I want to make a living. Sure. You know, I want to be just semi-famous and relevant enough to sell some tickets, but I don't want every jackass. I don't want I don't know. I, 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 it's the same thing. Like, no, I, not all customers are right. I don't want every asshole as a fan. If you don't, if, you know, if you don't like my stuff, that's fine. I don't need, I'm not trying to sell out basketball arenas. I just need a few hundred people a night to dig me, you know? Yeah. But yeah, the, going back to your question. Yeah. It's insane, especially in the corporate world, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be actual white collar corporate or, you know, retail corporate or whatever, but like just, Like, no, was that customer right for slapping his kid? Like, no, we don't want him as a customer. Go buy your shitty steak somewhere else. Get out of here. Yeah, we don't care. Ugh, ugh. Well, was there ever now, um, this could be, you can tell the story now if you want to or at any point, but was was there a last straw that got you out of any job? (laughs) This is a long story. Uh, I'll try to do a condensed version of it, but... um, as you could probably assume by some of my stories, I was very disgruntled. I hated, I should have, I should have quit six months in. I just, I was afraid to, cause I needed the check. You know, like I said, I didn't have a degree to fall back on. I didn't know, didn't have any other really tangible skills at that point in my life. And, um, we're talking about you being yeah, a cop, for, right? Yeah. Being okay. a cop and just, I, I should have quit six months into it. Um, uh, but I didn't, Cause I, I thought I, you know, I needed the paycheck. I thought I was getting married. I needed, you know, but I just became real disgruntled over dozens and dozens of incidents. The the one guy who tried to kill me, uh, I got suspended two weeks without pay because I broke his wrist while he was in handcuffs. In reality, he was in handcuff singular. I had to go in front of a board, a civilian review board. It was people, employees of the County, so here's a here's a lady who works at the water department. There's a mailman. There's a fireman. There's somebody on the city council, all judging how I do my job. I got suspended two weeks without pay because I used excessive force with a prisoner who was in custody. And I was like, "Hey, assholes! One handcuff does not mean he's in custody." But I, I broke his wrist 
the same wrist that I had one handcuff on. He's fighting me with the other one. Where he's trying to get your fucking gun. Yeah, the guy who's trying to actively murder me. Yeah, but they couldn't get past the technicality that he was in handcuff. I was like, he was in handcuff. And I had other officers, you know, uh, back up my story. Got suspended two weeks without pay for that. Another time I got suspended for wrecking a car in a car chase. That shit happens, right? You don't want me to wreck a car, then make it a policy that I'm not allowed to chase people when they don't pull over. It was several incidents like that. And this is why, I don't know if you mentioned this before on the show, but like, I didn't, I didn't talk, I've just now, doing comedy 16 years, I just now started talking about cop stuff. Because, as you know, like part of comedy is winning over the audience and trying to be likable in addition to being funny. And I just thought if I started talking about cop stuff too early, just, oh, he's a cop, this guy sucks, people tuning out. So it was a secret. Like, even a lot of my close friends didn't know I was a cop. And it wasn't just... The fact that I was a cop, it's the story I'm about to tell. But yeah, very disgruntled, just hated the job. Felt like, you know, I'd gotten screwed over by the department several times. One day I pull over a guy who's got a tag violation. It was the, they were real big into stats. You know, you got to write tickets, you got to write tickets, blah, 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 got to write tickets. Like, well, yeah, I'll do that when I'm not fighting for my life or investigating a cell phone theft between two sisters. But it, that was the other thing. It was called being proactive. Stone, why weren't you proactive? And we had this thing called a daily. It was just a log of everything you did that night. And I would just be like, look at my daily. This is why I wasn't pro- proactive, just meaning initiating traffic stops. You know, I was too busy handling calls. See, I'm rambling here, but like other units, like uh, a uniform patrol cop hates a traffic cop because we had traffic divisions traffic cops don't respond to 911 calls all they do is sit around and run radar and catch speeders now there's value to that you need to stop because you know you can catch people with drugs and weapons and yeah people can't be driving 100 miles an hour in a, in a 40 i get that i'm out here going to 911 calls for eight hours and this guy's sitting on his ass writing dumbass tickets so why aren't you proactive, Stone? Look at my daily. You know, I got into two fights tonight and I delivered a baby. I'm sorry I didn't write a fucking traffic ticket. <laughs> anyway. One day I pull over this guy. He's got, I was like, oh, I'm going to be proactive. And he got a tag light violation. And the, it was the cheat. I purposely, if they wanted stats, purposely uh, would write those tickets just because, like, it's the cheapest violation. It shows that I'm doing something. And it was, uh, it, was a, it was a Latino fella who didn't speak English. And I'm trying to explain to him uh, the routine. You, you, you show him the ticket. You have him sign the ticket. And on the back is a phone number. You circle the phone number. You say, hey, call this number in 10 days. You call before then. It won't be processed. After 10 days, call this number. They'll tell you how much your fine is and where to mail it. And he was like, well, how much is it? I go, fortunately for you, this is our cheapest one. I think it's like 50, 60 bucks. It's, I it's love that you're pitching. Deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, my boss says I have to write more tickets, so I'm sorry, but uh, I'll overlook some of these other violations. That that was a thing, too. Like, I, I tried to be a, a fair and honest cop and, you know, use discretion. That's the thing that so many cops don't have. I, I work with so many guys that if legally they could arrest you, they, they were would. going to arrest you. Oof. Where I'm like, well, hold on. Is arresting this this guy tonight, is this what's best for him and his family? Sure. You know, is, is there another way... 
that we, maybe we could solve this problem without him going to jail, losing his job, his family, you know, whatever. But I work with so many guys. If I could arrest you, zero discretion. And yeah. we were cops are granted huge amounts of discretion. I, I mentioned in my special, and this is totally true. Four and a half years of being a cop, I never made one marijuana related arrest. Good. That's the truth. And I'm proud good of that. for you. Not good. Not once. You know why? Because my girlfriend was a huge pothead. You know, so all like, my this friends is hypocritical. Were yeah, sure. I was like, at least I'm a cop, but I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And so much so, and I mentioned this in the joke, that like I would almost get in trouble. Like if my supervisors were on scene, they're like, why aren't you arresting that guy? I'm like, ah, come on, cut him a break. Like, I'm just not going to arrest a guy for three grams of weed. I'm just not going to do it. So anyway, point being, I did take pride in trying to do the right thing and use common sense and discretion. Call this number in 10 days. I think it's 50 or 60 bucks. And he's like, can I... I'm not going to do the accent, but uh, English wasn't his first language, but he was he was articulating that, you know, can I just pay it now? Can I pay? And he wasn't trying to bribe. Bless him. He just wanted he it like, done. Yeah. He's like, can I just pay it now? I don't want to go to court. And, and I just kept, dude, no. And he, and he had a $50 bill. Bless he's him. Like, can I just pay it now? I was like, no, man, you got it. I can't take your money. You just call this number. It, you, can, you don't even have to go to court on this charge. You can just mail in a check. He's like, why can't I pay you now? And this is fresh off being suspended for wrecking that car. And after about the fifth time of telling him he can't pay me now, I was just like, sure, you can pay me now. I didn't need the money. It was, it was an FU to the department. It was an act of rebellion. It was a split second of terrible judgment. It was a one-time thing. I wasn't proud of it. Like I thought about it a lot in the weeks following, like, I shouldn't have fucking done that. But it was just a, this guy doesn't understand. Y'all suck. There's $50. I'm ready to get out. Sure. I'll take your $50. If that means we can get the hell on with our nights. Six months later. So you're still working as a cop during that whole, so the six months go by and you're still on. So when you take the 50 bucks, do you rip up the ticket in front of him and you're like, that's a wrap or were you, okay. So you were able to, I'll I'll, I'll take care of it. I was like, I'll mail it in for whatever. Okay. And did you, were you able to mail it in for him then? No, I didn't. I, I, I said that, but I threw it, I ripped it up, threw it in the trash. I didn't want a paper trail of like, you know, but I, rather than admit to him exactly what I was doing, I was like, sure, man, I'll take care of it for you. Don't worry about it. And of course I ripped up the trash. I didn't want to submit the ticket and be like, wait a minute. He said he already paid, you know, I didn't want a literal paper trail. I felt bad about it. I knew it was wrong. Um, But you know, I was like, trust me, I saw a lot worse from not necessarily in that regard, but I, I saw a lot of worse violations from cops. Six months later, I'm just sitting around. I just started my shift. I remember I was eating some Chinese food. I got some little crappy Chinese takeout, and I'm just sitting in my car, just eating Chinese food. And the command, uh, not to bore you with these details, but I was an, an officer. Then you have sergeants. Then you have lieutenants. Then you have a commander. Commander's the highest rank in the precinct. Above him's only assistant deputy or deputy chief and chief, and they work at like the headquarters. But the commander is the big boss man at each precinct. And he never gets on the radio. It was just, you know, you never heard from him unless you were in trouble. And he never got on the radio because he wasn't working a beat. He didn't need to communicate with 911. Even managerial stuff, the sergeants and lieutenants would handle that. He was just, and uh, commanders were 
01. I was 31, uh, beat, uh, precinct three, shift one, beat 13. I was 31, 13. The commanders are 01. And on the radio, 3101 to 3113, report to the precinct immediately. And of course, all the other cops here, they're like, ooh, Stone's in trouble. And I didn't even think, like, I was like, what the? And I get back to the precinct, and the commander, two lieutenants, and two, two detectives from Internal Affairs. And when I saw the detectives from Internal Affairs, I knew exactly what was up. Because honestly, I hadn't been doing anything else. I was like, this has got to be what this is about, because I have a clear conscience otherwise. And they were just like, do you remember pulling over so-and-so at so-and-so? What had happened, later I learned the story, that the guy, my victim, uh, a month later or something, his brother got a similar ticket and was complaining about it. And my victim said, oh, well, I just paid the cop right there on the street. And the brother was like, what? And that was a thing that had happened traditionally in all realms of law enforcement was dirty cops would target, for lack of a better term, illegal immigrants because they're an easy target. Because a lot of time that you know they know they're here illegally or whatever, that they don't. They're not going to complain. So yeah. So his brother was like, and his brother's aware of, of that concern, and he was like, "Wait a minute, you did what?" And he goes, "Yeah, I, I got the same ticket. I just paid the guy fifty bucks on the on the street, and he took care of it." And the brother was like. I don't think that's how that's supposed to work. And his brother reported the incident. And then after figuring out time and location and physical description of the cop, they figured out it was me. And what I didn't know during this six month period, they had did a huge investigation on me. They thought I was part of a ring of dirty cops that had been doing this a lot. I don't know if there was an actual ring, but they thought I was involved with a ring. They even had undercover GBI officers, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, state-level FBI guys. They were working with the GBI about me. They were tailing me for weeks, seeing if I was doing it multiple times. I remember this happened. During that period, there was one night where I saw the same car three or four times in a night, like speeding and doing stuff. Every time I was on the way to an actual 911 call, so I couldn't stop him. But I was like, and after about the third time of the night, I see the same car and he throws out trash right in front of me. And I'm like, this dude's just begging to get pulled over. So finally, I see him when I'm not en route to a call. I pull him over and it's a Latino guy offering to pay me 50 bucks. And I didn't know it, but he had a body cam on. He had audio record. And fortunately, I was like, no, dude, that's not how this works. And in the back of my mind, I was like, well, that's how it worked six months ago. That one guy, I'm not doing that shit again. But this guy was kept trying to give me 50 bucks for a ticket. And the whole time I was like, and I was like, I couldn't understand. Like, you didn't see me? I was like, I, this is the third time I've seen you tonight. Every time you were either speeding or littering, what the hell are you doing, man? And I wrote him a ticket and like, keep your fucking money. You're lucky I don't try to report you for bribing a cop, blah, blah. Come to find out later, that was a GBI officer who was trying to, to bait me and bribe me. Wow. Thank God, you know, I didn't do it again. But long story short, fired, arrested, all over the local news. You were arrested? I almost went to prison for three to five years. What? I was this close to going to... I mean, yeah, dirty cop. Uh, the char I got charged with extortion and violation of oath of office. Like, 
Okay. Police officers yeah. The oath, yeah. and I violated because I said I would never do that kind of stuff. And technically, I ex- they they got me for extortion because you kept the money. Mm, they yeah. kept the money in lieu of writing him a ticket or arresting him. Oh Jesus! All over the local news. It was the most shameful experience of my life. The district attorney, like everybody, I had made the department look bad. And they told me, my lawyer told me, he's like, they, you're going to prison. Like, this is going to trial. You will get convicted. You're going to prison for three to five years. They will not. He said, I tried to get a plea bargain. You know, plea bargain meaning, you know, if you plead guilty, we don't have to do the whole trial thing. We'll give you probation and stuff. That's what I was hoping. They were like, they're not doing plea bargains. They're going to make an example out of you. You've shamed the department. You've shamed the community. You're going to trial. You're going to get convicted. You're going to prison for three to five years. I was like, all right. So for like six months between the arrest and and, and the final court appearance, for six months, I was just like, I'm, I'm about to go to prison. Not jail, prison as a dirty police officer. Yeah. Can you explain the difference and why that's so terrifying and that how you probably would have been murdered if that was true? Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. Two types of people don't last in prison. Rapists and child molesters and dirty cops. I would have surely been raped, murdered, or something. Or I would have had to murder someone to prevent that from happening. And that three to five would have turned into 50. And describe and the, di- just, the difference between jail and prison, Can you? because I don't think people know that either, why jail is, it's there's a distinction. Jail is just a, a basically a holding cell until you get convicted. Like, you know, you get a DUI, you're going to jail tonight. But prison is where you go after your trial, after you've been convicted. So, yeah, some people go to jail for a night. I think most jails, you know, 30 days is the maximum. If you can't bond out, and you're just stuck there until your court case to your t- trial. But, uh, yeah, prison's the real deal. I was going to Georgia State Prison. Minimum three, maximum five, as a publicly disgraced dirty cop. So what got you out of that experience? Some miracle. At the last second, my lawyer, I guess they just, the, the I don't know if it was a bluff or just, you know, something good to tell the reporters, but, you know, we, we will not accept any plea bargains. He will go to trial. He will get convicted. At the, and for six months, I just thought, I'm about to go to prison for three years. And at the last day, for some some miracle, my uh, attorney got them to agree to a plea bargain. And instead of going to trial, I, I pled guilty to extortion and violation of oath of office. And instead of going uh, to prison, I got five years of probation. Bless your heart. And, uh, no, my own damn fault. I, I I'm not... You know, I've had a long time to to think about this, but like it was every every night for two weeks. I was on the Atlanta local news. Dave, everybody I went to high school with, all my mom's church friends, all my old radio friends. Oh, shit. Stone's a dirty cop. Wow. Doesn't matter that, you know, all the good I thought I did, you know, And, and again, my own fault. But. But it, but yeah, I had already started a landscaping business in, within those six months, and uh, I had a friend working with me, and I had already transferred everything already, to your friend. Yeah, I was going to turn everything over to him. He was going to give a. I think we worked out a deal where he gives twenty five percent of everything to my fiance, you know, wow. to help her out while I'm in prison for three to five years, and uh, that was a rough six months. Just every night, she, thinking I used to, you know you know what I used to fantasize about. I would drive. I'd be driving home at night. And I'd always, you know, it was, I, w- I would see cops stopping people on the side of the road. 
And I just had this fantasy of like, maybe I'll drive past a cop getting his ass kicked and I'll jump out and help him. And then maybe that'll, they'll take it easy on me and not send me to prison. That was, I was like, that's my only hope. Cause they were just so adamant about like, no, nah, there's no plea bargain, dude. Like you've embarrassed the, impar- the department. You've shamed us all. We all look like assholes because of you. We're going to make an example out of you. Like the DA was on the news talking about this. And I was like, okay. And like what I'm in the disregarding all the other bullshit that you were seeing going going down every night with all the other cops. It was like they were going to they absolutely were doing what they said they were going to do was make an example out of you. And it wasn't just the fact that I did that. They were pissed at me because they were convinced that I was covering up for other cops. They thought I was part of a whole ring. And I remember that after I got arrested and I'm in the classic interrogation room, just like you see on first 48 or something, two internal affairs detectives just getting aggressive with me. Like, we know you're part of a ring. We give us names, give us names. And I only had a couple of decent friends. Um, Like I said, it's just the mindset. My mindset was so different from a lot of my fellow officers that I remember even telling them, I was like, look, if I had a name to give you, I would gladly give it to you because I don't have many fucking friends in this department. If there was somebody else involved and it would lighten my sentence, I'd be glad to give you a name. But I'm telling you, it was just me. It was just a one-time thing. They even set up a a hotline number and broadcast it on the news. If you or anybody you know thinks you might have been a victim of extortion by Officer Stone, please call, blah, blah. They thought they were going to get dozens. They were just convinced I was doing this for years and did it dozens of times along with other cops. And I was like, look, man, like, I know it was wrong, but it was one second of terrible judgment because I was disgruntled. There's no other cops involved. I never did it. Again. Like, I don't know what the fuck you want me to tell you. And they just thought I was lying. Like, all right, tough guy. Have fun in prison. I'm like, OK. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And when you so. use I think it's important to dis- distinguish like you used the word it was going to a rough six months. I think it was a traumatic six months. If I had to deal with yeah. that every day. I don't know how quickly you get over that, if at all, because the mental game that you play with yourself, because you're being told to prepare for that. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. so did you have, yeah, it, so you had five years of probation during that time. Did you then move to LA or were you not able to leave the state? Um, I could leave the state, but I had to get permission from my uh, probation officer. Uh, I started comedy about a year later. After that, I started about a year later. That's when I was like, fuck it. Okay. Buddy. Like, especially when I dodged the bullet, the metaphorical bullet of going to prison. I was like, all right, man, now it's time to live your life. And I started comedy about a year later. And uh, fortunately, I wasn't touring. I just started touring as a feature act uh, towards the end of my probation, about three or four years in. And every every time I'd, you know, plan a tour or something, I'd have to go. I'd have to. And this was embarrassing. I'd have to get club owners to sign things. Oh, and my God, Dave. Tell my probation. I had uh, to tell club owners that I was woo, a convicted felon. And my, I had this big, you know, kind of uh, burly, mean looking probation. I was just like, stand up comedy. What are you doing? Where are you going? I was like, yeah, and I had to like, like basically show my whole itinerary. I'm going to be here on this day, here on this day. That was the only way I was allowed to leave the state was with like thorough, detailed permission from my probation officer. But uh, yeah, just, you know, I mean, that was a piece of cake. Like I was yeah. so happy to just, just once a month, I just go in. And, oh, and they didn't even drug test me or anything. Like a lot of times because my my crime had nothing to do with drugs. My, oh. my main stipulation, 
instead of, you know, the average person on probation might have to go every month and pee in a cup or something. The big stipulation was, are you currently working in law enforcement? No. <laughs> You're like, okay, never again. See you next month. Yeah, that was my, that was, I mean, I think there were other minor sure, stipulations, sure. but the main thing they wanted to know was uh, I was not allowed to work in law enforcement. It's like, oh yeah, no threat of that, boss. <laughs> I'm uh, all set, actually. No going back to that <laughs> yeah. field. But yeah, and like my, my probation meetings always lasted like 30 seconds. He would just, just sit down and like, so you're working in, are you a cop still? No. no. You sure? Where are you working? Doing landscape. Okay. See you next month. I'm also going to the but chuckle yeah, bucket remember, in Washington. Don't worry about me. Yeah. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. I just remember the humiliation of like having uh. to explain to club owners who... I didn't even know I'm a feature act trying to work there for the first time. Like they'd book me and I go, okay, great. Uh, one more little favor. Can I fax you a thing? And you just sign. Oh, like, Dave, the, the fucking humble pie. You were just chowing down on repeatedly. God bless. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness you wanted to go into comedy and had your own business because getting hired, this is the problem. This is what so many people argue is like, once you're in the system as a felon, good luck trying to have a normal life and go clean. Not that you had a thing to go clean from, but you know what I mean? Like if you have a a felony conviction on your record, good luck. This is why they say it's like the, it's the poor taxes time. The felon taxes your life. Like you literally can't, you, you can't get out of the system. Yeah. And I was it, I was in this uh, what they called first offender status, meaning after uh, my probate, even though I was convicted, even though I pled guilty, it's still a conviction and it was a felony. So I was a convicted felon. But um, because I was first offender status after probation, it was supposed to be expunged from my record. It was supposed to just completely disappear. And I, w- I was even allowed to like on a job application or something. Have you ever been arrested? I was allowed to put no. Wow. Uh, it popped up a couple times. Well, one time when I was trying to get an apartment, Ugh. you know, on there, you ever been convicted of felony? And I'm like, well, yeah, but no, it's supposed to. Yeah. You know, so I, and then, you know, a week later, like, uh, it says here. And I was like, okay, let me tell you, like, you know, I, I, I was told that I could say no and it would be expunged. And I'm like, well, it showed up. So what's the story there? Ugh. And I didn't get that apartment because of that. Shocking. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, I lost my uh, voting rights and I couldn't carry a firearm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, and t- during those five years, I got my voting rights back because I started, you know, I, was, I voted the last two or three elections. Um, but I tried to buy ammo for a gun about a year ago at Walmart and it popped up and they're like, we can't sell this ammo. You're on the felon list. I'm like, oh shit. So I don't even know what's up with that. But uh, yeah, Bless. good time. That's why uh, when I started doing comedy, like, started working the road i was working with like other comics that would complain oh we got to drive three hours and then do a show i'm like dude i'm not a cop and i'm not in prison all as well i'll go wherever and do whatever just let me know like it was just yeah such a an easy you know there was no hardship like even i lived in a van for four years when i first moved out here and it was just like piece of cake easy i'm not I in prison. That. yeah what do i care did you, so real, uh, just to wrap this up. So you, for that whole process, you mm-hmm. decided at some point that now it's time to talk about this during comedy. Do you feel this sense of relief now that you can openly talk about it? Or are you still a little bit reticent with the dialogue? Well, I've never told that story on stage. Okay. Uh, in the special, I just tell two stories. One's kind of a goofy, lighthearted thing. And then the other is the head story. Uh, but the next hour that I'm working on now, I think the closer is going to be me trying to make this story funny. You absolutely can uh, make this funny, Dave. There's a thousand oh. opportunities. Yes, there's <laughs> a thousand opportunities to make this funny. I think you absolutely have yeah. to tell it. 
but it'll be interesting to but see how it shifts your comedy once you tell it. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I just never wanted to talk about it on stage. I never wanted to talk about just being a cop in general. I sure as hell never want to tell this story in public. Uh, but um, it was about a year and a half ago. I was on tour with Kyle Kinane and uh, he knew some of my close friends. You know, I, I told him this years ago. And he knew I didn't want to talk about this stuff. And he knew all these stories and all these other stories. And one night after the show, he's like, look, man, I'm up there talking about farts. <laughs> got all this incredible life experience, all these incredible stories. What are you doing? What are you doing? He's like, you're doing yourself a disservice by not talking about it. That's correct. And that's when I was like, you know what? You're right. Fuck it. Like, especially at this point in my career, like I'm still in LA, but like, I don't have a manager. I don't have an agent. I, I'm tired. I, I don't give a shit about like the typical, I'm not trying to get on a sitcom. You know, all I want to do is do podcast and tour. And so it's like, what the fuck do I care? You know, sure. This is what happened. And I told this story for the first time on my podcast with Kyle about two years ago. And I was real nervous to talk about it and got so much positive feedback of like, thanks for sharing your story. Wow. You're not a scumbag. We love you. People make mistakes, but I just, you know, short of being a rapist or a child molester, like there's not much worse than a dirty cop. And, you know, I can, I can tell myself whatever I want to tell myself, but at the end of the day, I took money that I shouldn't have. And, uh, you know, that's just something I've had to deal with now for 18 years. And, uh, but you know, and I think, I mean, this what I find to be true about comedy is, A, the only interesting comedy for me anymore is the most honest comedy. I can't, I'm so done with, like, talk about your kitty cats, like, all that shit. I'm like, I don't care. Unzip your skin or I can't listen because the only thing unique yeah. anymore is your story and the yeah. freedom yeah, that's that... Something I learned. That's something I learned early on in comedy. I forgot who was it that told me, but uh, they said, everything's been done but you. That's it. Like, oh. That's it. And that's the only interesting thing. And mm -hmm. I think Kyle's right. Like you have this rich, rich, rich history. What a gift to be able to share it. So yeah, thank you for continuing to share it. I think it's an important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to the, oh, sorry. I have to ask this question or people are going to scream at me. Can you describe the worst customer you've had to interact with or an archetype of who the worst customer is? I think the guy that beat his kid is pretty much up there. So we know you feel strongly about that, but can you think of like another or an archetype of who the worst is from a customer service perspective? Man, that's a great question. Thanks. That's all I needed. You don't even need to answer it. I took the compliment. Let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I think the I have so many cop stories where it's like, but in terms of like traditional customer service, probably, yeah, the, the guy beating his kid up in Longhorn, you know, it was just, yeah, probably that one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's up there. Okay. Well, folks, we're going to move on to the good stuff. We hope you saved room for dessert. Okay. What's the nicest thing a customer has done for you whilst you were working? Oh, man. Um, I didn't tell you this part. The day after I got fired, I got hired as a limo driver. I was a limo driver for about six months while I was getting my landscaping business off the ground. Uh, I was unemployed for one day. I went down the next day. I went to the unemployment office. I was standing in line because, you know, I had rent and bills and I was like, and I just that I was like, I'm not doing this. I'll go. I'll do something. I'll get some job tomorrow. And uh, that day I, I applied for a limo job and I got it the next day. So I was technically unemployed for just one day. 
But uh, one of our uh, big accounts, it was a limo company, but most of the time I was just driving a, a town car. Uh, I would pick people up from the airport. This was pre-Uber and Lyft. So, you know, people who could afford it would just, rather than take a taxi, they just book a town car to pick them up the airport. And one of our big clients was a hip-hop label. And uh, I, I, I drove all kind of rappers around. I drove Ludacris around, T.I. But uh, one time, uh, Little John bought me Fat Burger. Come on. So, <laughs> I love him. Bia Bia. Yeah, hey, uh, Little John. And the way we do it, like, you know, they booked the, it. It's booked and paid for in advance. And like, you know, I'd get my itinerary. It's like, all right, you pick them up the airport and you drive them to this address. No other stops. No going off route. And Little John wanted to go to Fat Burger. So guess what? I was like, hey, Little John. I appreciate that. I love Fat Burger, but I'm not allowed. You know, I'm only supposed to drive you point A to point B. And uh, he was real jovial and nice. And then he's like, how about, I'm not going to do his accent, but he was just like, how about I make it worth your time? And I'm like, and he gave me like, ironically, he paid me 50 extra dollars and bought, bought me dinner at Fat Burger. And we're just driving home. I'm just eating Fat Burger with Little John just by himself. Sipping the on lean. There he yeah. goes. God bless. And, uh, he was real nice. And I was like, look, man, I'm not trying to be difficult, but like, you only paid from point A to point B. I might get in trouble. Like, ah, come on, man. I'll make it worth your time. He gave me 50 bucks and bought me Fat Burger. And yeah, that was that was pretty nice. That is pretty nice. <laughs> Thanks, Little John. That's great. Yeah, Little John was cool. Okay. One other quick story. When yeah. I went to pick up Ludacris, I went to his house. And, uh, you know, the routine is you pull up, you hop out, and you grab their luggage, put it in the trunk. I hop out. There's Ludacris and two just giant dudes, like literally six, eight. 400 pounds, like two of them. They look like twins. <laughs> and uh, all three of them are standing there in his driveway and there's no luggage. And I hop out and I'm like, hey guys, we're going to the airport. Got What's any luggage? Up? And one of the bodyguards or whomever, he just goes, uh, Luda don't need no luggage. He buy new shit everywhere he go. <laughs> and I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Let's go. Luda don't need no luggage. He buy, buy new, new shit, shit everywhere, everywhere you go. go. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's pretty well, great. That's pretty cool. um, I let Ludacris was a radio DJ and that's how he, his career got off the ground. But when I interview yeah. him, we'll, we'll talk about that. We don't have to talk about him right now. Okay. Uh, can you give me uh, a story of your favorite customer that you've ever interacted with? I would assume little John's up there. Little John's up there. Um, when I was doing landscaping, I had, for whatever reason, I had just a, Half my client list was sweet little old ladies. Come and I just, on. I really enjoyed, you know, and I would do extra things. I'd take their trash down. I'd pick their mail up. But, uh, yeah, I had I had probably eight or ten, like, old single ladies that lived alone in these, like, old country farmhouses and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I just really – I always loved that. I just loved – and it was right, right after – it was during that six-month period I was talking about. Oh. And, like – Everything was just so doom and gloom and sad. I'm going to prison. I'm going to get murdered. And it was just such a breath of fresh air to interact with somebody, some sweet old ladies who didn't know and didn't care what I had been going through. They weren't judging me. And, uh, yeah, I just, I really, I don't know. It was like I had like a dozen grandmas and they would always, they'd bring me lemonade. And You needed to be loved on by me. Southern grannies. Yeah, you I, needed yeah, that. Yeah, I think I needed that. But oh. I just always remember... You know, I was always excited when 
one of those customers was on my itinerary that day. It's like, oh, I get to go see Miss Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> oh. and I'll take her trash cans down and make her day. Oh, you're just the sweetest young man. Oh. And, and uh, especially when so you're, that was, yeah, you're working through the yeah. emotion of all that shame that you're putting on yourself yeah. and feeling terrible. Yeah. And when you get a little Mima loving with some lemonade, that yeah. was so important. Yeah, and it just, yeah, and I didn't tell him, but I was just thinking, oh, I really needed this because I'm probably going to get raped and murdered <laughs> next time. So, uh, nice. Thanks for the lemonade, Miss Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I wish I could end the podcast right there. We got a couple more questions. All right. Can, uh, not to make fun of, not to make light of rape and murder. But, but hey, we got to make jokes about something. Uh, yeah. What's the best tip you've ever gotten? Best tip? Mm-hmm. Not like, uh, hey, shoot for the stars. Oh, not monetary. Or, yeah, monetary, monetary. What's the what's the? Oh, monetary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, I feel like I've gotten a, a nice, clean hundred dollar bill. Fuck yeah! One time when I was driving like DoorDash. Hell yeah! Five years ago, out here, I forgot it Damn. wasn't anybody famous. Or at least I didn't recognize them. But yeah, uh, some guy, and he didn't even give it to me in person. It was just you know, you get back and you look at the app. And yeah. Like, oh, they tipped you a hundred bucks. But yeah. I think I've got a couple of hundred bu- hundred dollar tips here. I think I got a maybe a hundred dollar tip from one of the rappers, Lil Scrappy or somebody. Through some, <laughs> he was the guy. Sound I don't. I, to this day, I don't know who Lil Scrappy is, but he was in the back, and it was him and another guy, and they were like, "You like hip hop?" And I'm like, "Eh, a little bit." And they're like, "You know Lil Scrappy?" And I was like, "No, sure I don't, don't think so." <laughs> He's like, "You don't know?" He got mad. Like, "You don't know Lil Scrappy?" And I go, "Let me guess, a little Scrappy." He's like, "Yeah, man." <laughs> I didn't know who Will Scrappy was, but I think he tipped me like a hundred bucks one time. Yeah, I've got a couple in all my different jobs. I think I've got two or three hundred dollars tips, but I don't think I've got anything beyond that. I really appreciate the self-confidence that it requires to be speaking in third person and quixotically asking someone like, you ain't ever heard of me. Like, I'm going to start going up to people and be like, you ain't ever heard of Kate Gaffney? And then just be, and then waiting for them to be like, are you Kate Gaffney? It's a pretty baller move that I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to borrow that play. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. You could tell it definitely was a blow to his self-esteem with my (laughs) little scrappy was. Whatever. You know, I think he's a SoundCloud rapper. Okay. What is the best lesson you have personally learned from working in all of these jobs? Hmm. Probably treat others the way you want to be treated. You know, it's a pretty good one. Whether it be servers or cops, I, I see both sides of it. And I, and I don't just default to one or the other. If I get bad service, part of me is like, Hey, I've been there. I know what you're going through. But the other part of me is like, I've been there. I know what you're going through. And guess what? I did a better job than this. I do that all you know? the time. And same thing with the cops. You yeah. know, not all cops are bastards. You know, but also like, hey, asshole, I used to be a cop. You don't need to be talking to me like this. There's there's other ways to do this. That's right. You know? So just uh, having perspectives from both sides of the fence and just remember that when I'm the customer. That's right. When I'm just whomever out in public. Like I, I, to this day, like I judge people like if you're mean to servers, like get the hell out of here. Like that's such if you're mean to servers and you don't return your shopping cart. Those it's, are two people I don't want to hang out with. They say there's a psychological <laughs> test. I forget what they call it, but it's the shopping cart test because it's the it's mm-hmm. the it's a consequence free experience. And are you still yeah. good when there are no consequences? They use that exactly. as a yeah, it's a it's a date test. Okay. And then final question. What's mm-hmm. one piece of advice you would give to customers who interact with customer service workers? The customer's not always right. We Boom. appreciate your business, <laughs> but it's not it's not a it's not a foolproof. It's not a black and white experience. (laughs) Not a black and white thing. Customer, we appreciate your business, but you're just because you spend eight bucks on a sandwich doesn't mean you get to 
doesn't give you the right to treat people like crap. You yeah, know? you're not lord of this experience. Yes, I love exactly. that. Okay, well, Dave, how can people listen to Pack a Lunch and your many podcasts? Can they follow you on the socials? Are you on tour? Tell yeah. us everything. Yeah, uh, dumbdavestone.com, all the tour dates. Uh, Pack a Lunch is on YouTube right now. Just Dave Stone, Pack a Lunch. Um, you can stream the audio wherever you do that. And if you're into vinyl, I'm a big record collector. Uh, you can go to blondmedicine.com. That's the record label. We're doing a limited edition double LP of Pack a Lunch. So you can watch it on YouTube or you can listen to it on vinyl. You can stream it. And then uh, my podcast, I have the Stonebergs with my wife, Katie Strandberg. Oh, no, Katie. Used to do some stuff with. And uh, ironically, just yesterday, Boogie Monster went on hiatus. So uh, we're taking a break from the Boogie Monster. But uh, all those episodes are still up. And, you, you know, if you're into that, uh, we did it almost seven years and it was just time for a break. But, uh, yeah, it was me and Kyle Kinane just talking about Bigfoot and Ghost and UFOs. And, I mean, that was a plan. Usually it just devolved into us talking about fried chicken. But, <laughs> and yeah, you spilling Monster, fried chicken. Okay. Yeah, Boogie Monster's up there, and uh, Stonebergs is me and my wife. It's just uh, kind of a, a, a really loosely based self-help advice show. Just two idiots that can barely run their own lives are here to give you advice. So, and there's, do you still uh, have? I called in the phone number once. Do you still have the phone number that people can call in? Yeah, yeah, the phone okay. number. Uh, yeah, let me give that out. Just uh, yeah. I forgot what it, I don't. I after three years, I still don't have it don't, memorized. Uh, I don't have it uh, memorized. So yeah, five six two five four eight. 2012 562-548-2012 uh you can give us a call and we'll be glad but yeah give us a call and uh you know we're, we're not experts on anything but uh we're here to listen it's very so, loving oh, though the advice you give is very very loving and it's a fun yeah, it's a really and, and fun Katie's so much fun to, yeah, i mean she she's just she's the most fun she's to improvise the with she is the best just a big goofball we're both just a couple of goobers still trying to figure it out so y'all should get married well, yeah. folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen. It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind and will be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us here at Service from Hell directly, send us your receipts to servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Remember, if you can't afford to tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Thanks, Dave, for so much time. You totally understood yeah. the assignment. This was lovely. I really appreciate awesome. your time. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night.